0: Look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are
1: tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring Pro Football Talk, The Dan Patrick Show, The Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports.
2: Hello, I'm Peter King. And welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, the first triple header of the year. I'm going to start with Chris Sims, the analyst for Bleacher Report and CBS then go up to Buffalo for Richie Incognito, and then with the New York Giants and their linebacker, Jonathan Casillas. I asked Chris Sims, a former New England Patriots employee, why Bill Belichick is so
1: good. I think the biggest thing is everything is about supplying information to Bill so he can make the decisions, and Bill has the front office and the coaching staff all on the same page. That's the biggest difference, and there's never a day off with Bill Belichick.
2: I asked Richie Incognito about his old team, the Miami Dolphins, and what they're going to have to do to stop Pittsburgh.
0: You know, this is a a classic Pittsburgh deal. They're going into the playoffs. They're rolling. They have the pedigree. It's going to be a cold day in Pittsburgh, and they're going to try and establish the run, and the, the key to this game is for Miami to get that stopped. And I asked
2: Jonathan Casillas what he learned from a linebacking predecessor of his with the New York Giants, Lawrence Taylor.
3: He basically said... When you're playing against somebody, make them remember you. You know, inflict your will to the point where they remember you.
2: Those conversations and more, coming up next. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Uh, pleasure to be joined today by Phil Simms' son. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. I like it. <laughs> you know, so in the 80s, when I used to work for Newsday, I covered the New York Giants. Right. And... Uh, I have a lot of fun memories of covering Phil Sims, but probably my favorite memory is before the NFC Championship game in 1986, it would have been January 87, yes. before they played Washington. Right. Everybody in your house in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey was sick. And so we were in the locker room, it was a Friday afternoon, he goes, hey, what are you doing? He goes, I said, not much. And he goes, hey... I- Everybody in my house is sick, so I don't think I'm going home. You want to go have dinner. Uh, So we went to eat at Il Villaggio uh, on Route 17. Yes. And Phil walked in, and Phil said to the maitre d', he said, hey, do you want to go to the game? He goes, oh, yeah, I'd love to go to the game. I'm off on Sunday. And So Phil takes two tickets out of his pocket, hands them to the maitre d', and the guy is speechless. I mean, in those days, the Giants were big. They were big, and then, of course, that was a big year. That was a huge year.
1: That's hilarious. I didn't go to the game because I was sick. You didn't go to that game? I did not go to that game. I went to every game that year, but that game I missed because I was just recovering. It was a cold, windy day. It was really a cold day, yeah. My mom kept me home.
2: Yeah. Well, anyway, that's a fun memory of yesteryear. Let's move to this year, all right? So, Chris, as we're sitting here, I should tell everybody that Chris is a multimedia person right now. You do a great podcast for Bleacher Report. Thank you. And you also do games for CBS. We're recording this on a Monday in New York City. And so yesterday, on Sunday, week 17 of the NFL season, I was home watching Red Zone Channel, and here comes the Baltimore-Cincinnati game, and all of a sudden I said... Who is that? And I just said, wow, I want, I hope Chris is going to take a flight tonight to get back home. I got you, uh, man. Because we got to do this this morning. <laughs> but anyway, so, Chris, you are making a good way for
1: you in this media
2: world, and I really appreciate you joining me to preview the playoffs.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me. You're, you know, if you haven't heard, you're kind of a big deal around here, so it's... I, I, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm so big. You're yeah. the man. Yeah, thank you. But thanks for having me.
2: Anyway, uh, so... You know, I wanted to start with you, before we actually preview the playoffs and who you like and who you don't, I want to ask you about two other things first. The first is the MVP award. Sure. All right, so I get a vote in this, and I'm actually quite confused this year. It's a tough one. It's a real tough one this Mm -hmm. year. And so I have gone back and forth and forth and back over this, and... uh, I think, I think I'm coming down to Matt Ryan or David Carr. Right. Just because I think the word valuable in this really has to be weighed. I agree. And so I wonder if you were to do your top X number right now, Who would, A, if you know who would get your vote, and B, who would be the prime contenders?
1: Yes, okay. Uh, Listen, I think Derek Carr was certainly at the top of the list or in that conversation for my top two or three guys. You know, of course... A little bad performance, hurt his hurt his finger, uh, and then of course the injury. In, in my eyes, I'm I'm kind of taking him out of it because of that. Even though he has an MVP caliber type of year, uh, to me, I, I really look at it as a two person race. You think it
2: was a big negative his game against Kansas City? On yeah, a just night. it
1: was a definitely a big negative. I right. mean, he went through a little area there. You know, even the San Diego Charger game uh, the yeah. following week where he wasn't quite as sharp as we had yeah. seen. And then he came out in that Colts game and looked really good. So don't get me wrong, he's yeah. played at an MVP type. Level, right? But I just think Matt Ryan and Aaron Rodgers are the two for me this year. It's one of those two, and you can make an unbelievable case for both of them. I mean, what the Atlanta Falcons have done all year offensively five hundred and forty points, one of the top scoring offenses in all of football, with not a great defense. Knowing basically you have to go out and -score. score people, right? That there's something to that. That puts pressure on a quarterback, so I give him a lot of credit. And then the Aaron Rodgers thing, you know, he epitomizes MVP to me. Like you were saying, just because. Aaron Rodgers, I think if you start the year, you look at it. I mean, he went five or six games without a running back. Without a running back on the field, he was leading his team in rushing. And I just go, wow. You basically, they play a game where they say, hey, Aaron, we're going to put you in the shotgun. And we don't have a ton of talent at receiver, but we're going to make you just – wheel and deal and make nine people miss and dodge and flip and cartwheel every play. And then you're going to throw 30, 30 yard missiles down the field. That's all we're asking you to do here to win. If you can do that, we'll be okay. And that's what he does. So that's why I'm amazed by Aaron Rodgers. I know you're going to say the early season struggles, but I also look at it like this. We talked about the running back issues. They had a very tough schedule in the year. Was he a hundred percent? The Aaron Rodgers we had seen, no, you know, in years past. No, he probably doesn't play as a high level, but Jordy Nelson wasn't healthy. Devontae Adams still wasn't a legit threat. They had no Jared Cook. And we talked about the running game and it was all on his shoulders. Aaron Rodgers, to me, uh, there's nobody that offense stinks. I would say that the Giants, the Seahawks, the Packers have the three worst offenses in football, but it's all on Aaron every game, just like you saw last night in the, the game against Detroit. I mean, it's it's Aaron just back there making things happen. He's I'll just say this to end my conversation because I know right. I'm talking a lot no, on your own podcast. <laughs> but Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback I've ever seen in my life. I would say Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback ever. That's how highly I I was think amazed of him.
2: to hear your dad say about 3 weeks ago, Aaron Rodgers is the best thrower of the football in NFL history. Yes. That's an amazing statement, especially because Phil Simms studies
1: everybody that's what we do so you can call us you you can call us idiots and that's fine i understand that but there's one thing you know i mean we work with high school quarterbacks college quarterbacks NFL quarterbacks, I'm not going to drop names. I mean, that's what we've – I grew up doing this. So Aaron Rodgers is the most physically gifted quarterback I have ever seen. He is maybe the best running quarterback in football right now. And then his arm, his quick release, his ability to throw the ball down the field with power, whatever it may be, yeah, it's there with the Dan Marino, the John Elway conversation, and I do. I think he's the best thrower of the football I have ever seen. You know,
2: one of the reasons why I didn't have him in the discussion Honestly, right. probably until last night. Yeah. And after the game, I talked to him for about five or ten minutes, just really quick, and I asked him. I said, you know, I, I said, I don't know if you know this stat or you know about this, but I said, midway through the season, Pro Football Focus had a great stat on you. It didn't make you look good, but I said it had a great stat on you. Yeah. You were always among the leaders, either one or two or three. In accuracy on downfield throws. Yes. Well, this year through eight weeks, you were at the bottom of that, either 29 or 30, but you were way down in the NFL on downfield throws. And I said, What? And so that's why to me, it wasn't just everything that was going wrong. And he gave a very interesting answer. Okay. Yeah. And his answer was, Okay. Uh, starting with Washington, we had Jared Cook back. Right. And he goes, I really like throwing to the tight end. But not only that, we started playing, and I don't know that the stats bear this out, really, because I looked it up and the stats really didn't bear it out. But he said, I just felt like we were throwing the ball and I had bigger targets out there. Jared Cook, Devontae Adams— I think what he meant to say was he trusted yes. Devonte Adams right. more than he had trusted him earlier in the year. So he's right. got Jared Cook back. Yeah. He's got Devontae Adams, who he's willing to do a jump ball with, right? Okay, and of course Jordy Nelson, is the receiver he, again yeah, that right. he's trusted more than he ever than anybody ever. Right. And just just look at this. I mean, later in the year. I would have no idea. About week 13, I look up and there's some guy named Geronimo Allison playing for them. And I said, who is this guy? Right. He's huge. Right. He's a- and so I just started to say to myself, now, because then it all made sense. Bigger guys, bigger targets, and he's willing to say, I'm going to throw the ball up there right. and let them go up against a 5'11 corner. They got five inches on them, and I'm willing to play kind of not necessarily jump ball. But as a quarterback, do you find that, like I would wonder if I'm Eli Manning, yes. and I've got, I'm not saying they're Smurfs, but they're smaller guys. Sure, You know, Victor Cruz and Sterling Shepard and obviously Odell Beckham. Right. I wonder if that plays a part in, in your confidence,
1: in throwing the ball deep, knowing that maybe those guys aren't going to win the jump ball. Yeah, certainly. I do think that. Um, you know, listen, size is a big thing. It does make a quarterback feel comfortable. I think if you broke it down, though, I would still take the Giants receivers over the Packers. I mean, I would take Odell, Beck- Odell Beckham Jr. is the best receiver in football. You know, it's just lack of creativity in the offense in general. And, you know, you really studied them early in the year. I mean, uh, you, you can't name five plays where you see receivers open those first six or seven weeks. They just don't have great speed. I think Aaron Rodgers makes these guys a lot of times. Like, think of James Jones. James Jones can't even make a team in the NFL. Yeah. He goes back to the Green Bay Packers and it's, he's got not, he's one of the lead leaguers <laughs> in touchdown catches. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's just an unreal talent. He was off a little bit early in the year, but I also think they were in like a transition phase where they're just like, what are we on offense? And I think when they finally got cooked back, like you mentioned, and they just said, hey, Aaron, we're going to put it in your hands. Let's stop trying to mess around with trying to find a run game, that's when he basically took over. And, and I just look at it like you said, the MVP thing. I, I think they're like a 6-10 and 10 football team with any other quarterback of football. and that's They might why be he a 4-12 football team. That's what I mean. That's yeah, why, that's why yeah. I think I would... But a lot I, of
2: these guys are the same. I mean, you look at the Oakland Raiders and how they played against Denver... And, I mean, shoot, they're a 4-12 team without Derek Carr. So you could do that with a lot of guys, really. And I agree. My biggest – one of my biggest struggles this year, and I wouldn't even say that I ever seriously considered Tom Brady, even though he had just an incredible Incredible. 12-game year. Okay, there have been 61 guys who have won the MVP award in the 59 years of the voting because it was tied twice. So there's been 61 guys. There's never been a player of those 61 who has missed a quarter of his team's games and won. Right, And so I'm not saying that I absolutely wouldn't vote for Brady. He would be in my top five. Yes, definitely. But I think that missing four games, and again, look, it's, you know, why did he miss him? You can argue about that all day. But the fact is you either play or you don't play. Yeah. And uh, so
1: that He took the air out of the footballs. That's why he didn't play. So well, I we gotta But s- wait a second,
2: wait a second. <laughs> yes. I don't buy necessarily that he took the air out of the footballs. That's a classic case of that really is a classic case of in my opinion, the NFL has some interesting circumstantial evidence. Sure. Very interesting. However, I don't think they ever proved that Tom Brady took the air out of the football.
1: No, but I mean, you know, it, it, this is a deep subject. First part, I think, I mean, we need like an hour to talk about this. But the first thing is, I'm with you with Brady. He's definitely in top five MVP. Really, probably number three It would be Brady yeah. for my MVP. But yeah, he missed four games. And like you said to start, the the meaning of MVP, like... The New England Patriots would have been 13-3 and three with Jimmy Garoppolo. I, I'm not trying to disrespect Tom, yeah. you know, Tom Brady, but they're an awesome team. It's the best yeah. coach in the history of football. It's maybe the best offensive coordinator in football. There's a ton of weapons around him. So I look at it like that. Now, the air in the football thing, listen, if he wanted to squash that, he could have just shown people a cell phone. You know, I can really get deep into this. But listen, all signs to me point towards looked like he took air out of the football. He could have squashed it very easily by not destroying his cell phone. He didn't do that. And there's a lot of, you know, a Murphy's Law with the cold air. Oh, so it decided to take some air, more air out of some footballs and less air out of other footballs on a 50 degree day, but... That has to do with... I get it. That has to do with the
2: two gauges, too. But I want to ask you something. This is a little known fact about Chris Sims. When you got out of football, you actually spent a year, or how much time with the Patriots? About 18 months. You spent 18 months yeah. with the Patriots. What exactly did you do?
1: I was the bitch boy. That's what I did. I yeah. really was. I was the offensive quality control coach, so I basically broke down all the games and did all the scouting of the team we were going to play a week ahead of the schedule, right? Who was the coordinator at the time? Josh McDaniels. Okay. So I was doing all the dirty work, sitting there, breaking down the film, supplying the coaches with information early in the week so they could get started to start their game plan. And then I was in charge of uh, northeast scouting a little bit making tapes i had other duties within the scouting part of the organization as well unbelievable thing see people think i don't like new england cuz i just i don't say tom brady's the best quarterback right now at 39 like i love tom brady that's what annoys me you're critical of the teams you like the most right yeah. and i'm a huge new england fan and new england fans think i hate them and i'm like no i really root for you guys like every single week uh i just try to be a realistic person a lot of the time yeah. But it was a great experience being there, and I learned so much, and I got an inside look of why they're the greatest franchise in the last 20 years and maybe ever in the history of the NFL.
2: What's the one thing from that experience that you take away from Bill Belichick and you say... This is the thing
1: that everybody else is missing. <laughs> There's, First of all, I don't think, you know, you've been around Bill. He's one of the smartest individuals you can be around, period. Yep. I mean, if he went to Wall Street, I think he'd be running Wall Street and be the head of Goldman Sachs and making $100 million there, too. I think the biggest thing is Bill is so smart, so tactical— Everything is about supplying information to Bill so he can make the decisions, and Bill has the front office and the coaching staff all on the same page. That's the biggest difference, and there's never a day off with Bill Belichick. Oh, it's March 23rd? No, we're working hard, and we're going to be detailed as shit today, no matter what. It doesn't really matter. I mean, Bill was the kind of guy that, it's Saturday, and we're in a a coach's meeting, and he goes... All right, you guys. Uh, I'll, I'll see you in here tomorrow, at like ten thirty. And one of the coaches raised their hand. They're like, Coach, you you know tomorrow's Mother's Day. And he's like, Oh yeah, oh, oh man, okay. I didn't realize it was Mother's Day. All right, oh, I'll see you guys Monday. Like it's just he's he is football all the time, <laughs> and it's where his mind is. It's not even a grind to him. It's really just a way of life. You know
2: what? A lot of people will say, Well, geez, how much longer will Belichick coach? And uh, I've said this to people in their organization before. I've said, when you watch him on the sidelines, the reason why he's successful and the reason why he's probably not saying to himself, gee, I can't wait till I get on the boat up at uh, Nantucket. I just can't wait to be (laughs) out of here. It's because... He doesn't really have stress and strain when he's on the sidelines. Gary Kubiak, now he has stress and strain, right. even though he looks like, uh, yeah. you know, it looks, looks calm, like it right. looks calm. Right? You know, he's paddling five hundred miles an hour underneath <laughs> the surface of the water. Right. But what is so interesting about Bill is that what he is on the sidelines is what he is on Wednesday at ten o'clock in the morning. You're exactly. It's right. it's not. There's no stress. There's no. So everybody says, how much longer will he coach I would not be surprised if he coached fifteen years. I, I, agree. I wouldn't at all. Agreed. You know, you're right. Isn't... Like, and that's one of the reasons. You know what? This is it's an interesting discussion. I, I'm one of the few. I think in the media, I don't think he's trading Jimmy Garoppolo.
1: I I would doubt it either. Why would you,
2: you why know? would you trade a guy who you know is gonna succeed Tom Brady and who can play for ten years? Right. You've drafted seven quarterbacks since Brady, and you've only trusted one. And again, I'm putting words and thoughts in his mind. I don't know what he's thinking. I'm just watching all these guys play. Yeah. Ryan Mallet, he couldn't do it, Rohan Davey, right. all these other guys. Right. But now you get Garoppolo. Look at him in the first game of this season. He yeah. was a top ten NFL quarterback right. that day right. against the Arizona Cardinals. A tough defense, a changing defense. Yes, and second he, game he he gets everything, hurt and he had yeah. two
1: thirty-two and three touchdowns in the first half.
2: Yeah, that's why yeah, I, he's killing Miami, right? Exactly against Indomican Sue and right. Cameron Wake and all these guys. Right. But anyway, my whole point is about Belichick. That you know, overall, I just think that it isn't necessarily that. He does one thing better than everybody else or anything. It's just he's got the whole package. And you just yeah. said something really, really interesting. So last night I spoke with Jed York, hmm. okay, and we talked about how in the world do you go two years in a row given two guys just one year? Right. I mean, you're, the 49ers are the only team in the last 30 years to fire two coaches after one year. Wow. Consecutive coaches. That's pretty... That has not happened since... The Minnesota Vikings did it, and even that's a weird one in the early 80s because they fired uh, Les Steckle. Then uh, Bud Grant only stayed one year. He didn't want to keep doing it. So it wasn't like they fired him. So you really got to go back to the 70s, right, before Bill Walsh when the 49ers did it two years in a row again, you know, uh, two generations ago. But... What I find really interesting is that Jed York, one of the first things he said to me was, you know, there was just a disconnect in our organization, you know, between, and these are my words, not his, but it was clearly between the coaching side and the scouting side. How many times do you hear that? You hear that with half the organizations in football. It's like, you like a don't have an ag- Yeah. You don't have an agreement between those two sides. Right. Why do you think that is so important, especially in New England?
1: Yeah, well, I think you know you look at the successful teams, right? The teams that we go are always in the conversation, right the Steelers, the Ravens, all the you know the seattle seahawks they they all have that in common, right not that they're not one guy's calling the shot, but you know uh Tomlin has a good relationship with Colbert out in right. Pittsburgh, so it works you've got to have that it doesn't have to necessarily like. Yeah, there's a civil war in just about every building, and you don't need to see eye to eye. And I think what Bill does a great job is he goes, I want all of you to evaluate certain things and do it. And you know what? None of you are going to have any say anyways. I'm going to make the call here. And... It works, of course, because he's so brilliant, but I just think it's Bill's success and then his attention to detail to tell the scouting department and Nick Casario exactly how he wants things broken down for free agent players, you know, the, the guys coming out in the NFL draft, how he grades them and then ties it all together, makes coaches watch and double check film and scouting players as well. So it's just an organization that uh is unlike any other, there's no stone unturned, as they say. And, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, he's not going to stop until he goes senile. I mean, that's really the only thing I could see stopping him because he's no wife, the kids are old, and they're there in the building with him working, and he's just, you know, oh, I'm going to go to work today, and it's 5.30 yeah. a.m., and I'll see, I'm going to go to bed at 12 when I'm done working, and I'll do it again tomorrow. That's still, yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. Here we are at the MMQB
2: podcast with Peter King, here with Chris Sims. So, Chris, if you had to choose a coach... Right now, mm. give me your three guys who would be intriguing to you, and if you were one of these teams, you'd absolutely want to
0: interview them.
1: Yes, the the two guys right off the bat that come to my mind are Kyle Shanahan with with the Atlanta Falcons, what he's doing there on the offensive side of the football. Uh, it 's special, and I think if you really look at his his track record i 'm a close friend of Kyle. We went to Texas together. uh His track record though is pretty remarkable you know for some reason, people thought like his dad was running the offense in Washington. that was not the case. They were a top five offense when Kyle was in Texans with the Houston Texans and being offensive, exactly right with Gary Kubiak as the head coach. that was Kyle shanahan 's offense, so uh, he 's one of the best offensive minds in the game and He's going to develop young quarterbacks. So he's a guy to me is a no brainer. And then right off the bat, the other guys, I'm going with Josh McDaniels. I mean, Josh McDaniels, I know it didn't work in Denver. I was there, but there was a lot more, you know, what do they say, extenuating circumstances right. going yep. on there. He that, didn't have a personnel guy he liked. Exactly yep. right. They were an t- organization. I think he was promised a lot of things, long story short, right. that just weren't, that didn't happened and it became a very dysfunctional little year he had in his the first two year.
2: things the two things that really hurt him there in my opinion yes. i think he should never have hired his brother to be the quarterback coach i hear ben you. mcdaniel sure okay even though i like ben okay and ben's i think ben is a good coach yes i i think the players in that building didn't like that yes okay number two Even though, in retrospect, it seems ridiculous. At the time, it didn't seem as ridiculous, but drafting Tebow and making him your big, big project, that turned out to be something that, you know, players looked at that and say, this is a joke. Yes. You know, and even the receivers on that team, you know, he drafted Demarius Thomas, too. People forget that. And that was a great pick. Demarius Thomas had zero respect for Tebow as a player. Yes. And so that really hurt him. But I would agree with you. One of the things that I like about Josh McDaniels is that he went to school on why he failed. Right. And he studied every reason about why he failed. He, he interviewed people about what I did wrong, and I'm going to go back and study that and take a look at it. So I agree with you. I think both those guys would be really good. The one thing I don't think, yeah. I do not think, even though I think Denver is going to most likely hire... An offensive head coach. Yes, I don't think it's a lock that Elway will hire Kyle Shanahan. Oh no, I don't either. It seems logical, but I don't think it's a lock
1: because the que- the, the relationship between John and Mike Shanahan is questionable. I yes. think a lot of people yeah. would worry about that. So, yeah. Yeah, does John view Kyle like his father? You know, yeah. he did, I don't know if John really. See, knows I think Kyle, a lot so of be interesting.
2: Scott Pioli told me this once. I you know he's in Atlanta now as a assistant GM that Kyle has sort of the football intelligence it reminds him of Belichick's football intelligence and how deep it is. And I think, I mean, you're pretty lucky, aren't you, to go, it's like you, you're pretty fortunate to have learned, you know, just from the ground up your whole life, you were immersed in it. So you know what to look for, you know everything. It's like, Bill Belichick, why is he so smart? His dad wrote the first book about football scouting. Yes, Steve Belichick at the Naval Academy. Paul Brown wrote the foreword to Steve Belichick's book on scouting. And so all all that stuff, you know it. But I guess I would just say that I would agree with you. Those would be my top two guys. You know, if David Shaw came out I would really be interested in David Shaw. Sure, I think he really has rare communication ability. I, I
1: would know? agree. From, uh, a, from I've only met him, yeah. uh, but it certainly seems that way. He he reminds me of like a a Mike Tomlin. You like you might yeah. not want him to be your coordinator, but he understands how to get it all together. He's got the global view. He does. He's got the real exactly good global right. view. Exactly. All right. In
2: our remaining couple of minutes, here's what we got to do. Okay, you got to tell me who do you really like in the playoffs? Yeah. Who do you who do you think? If you had to pick a team or two, say, that isn't the top seed, who do you really like, and what do you see happening in the next month?
1: Yeah, okay. Listen, I think the NFC is really up for grabs. I I really do. And Now, the Giants are scary, of course, because of that defense, and Odell Beckham Jr., and you know Eli's experienced in this time of the year. So I do look at them as a threat. Atlanta is a team that I still look at and go Atlanta can easily go to the Super Bowl. If Atlanta has to go to Dallas and play in the NFC Championship game, they're capable of winning a shootout against the Dallas Cowboys. There's no doubt about that. The Dallas defense isn't like, you know, the early 90s Cowboys teams we saw there with all those, you know, so uh, I think it's very much up in the air, too. And then how can you not talk about Aaron Rodgers and Green Bay with the way they're playing right now? So the NFC, I you know, find I would be really worried
2: about about Green Bay's secondary right now. I know that they're it, they're right. they're it's like they're denuded. They don't they don't have anybody left. No, you wonder. I mean, what's going to happen with Demarius Randall? What's going on with Quentin Rollins? Yes. All that stuff. So right. I mean. That is I, concerning. Like, that can they would go be to concerning. Atlanta and Can win? they go can they play a shootout four games in a row? I don't no. I know. I, I if you put a You're gun not going to gonna have head. to be, play the Giants in a shootout, but one of those other games at least one you're going to have to play a shootout. Agreed. And that's yeah. it's
1: a lot to put on Aaron Rodgers to say, "Hey Aaron, we need you to throw it 35 times and throw for 350 and four touchdowns." So
2: especially when a, at least one of the games is going to be in weather.
1: Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. And uh, it's that's uh that you're right. That'll be a very interesting thing. So I look at that I really think if Dallas can win the divisional playoff game, I think they'll go to the Super Bowl. The divisional playoff game is the trap game, though. It's We didn't have to really play Week 17. We got a bye week, and they got some young guys on their team who playoff football. I know for fans out there, you go, oh, what's the big deal? No, playoff football is a different animal. I have just a little experience of playing it myself, but... It is a whole different ball game, So I do think that'll be interesting to see if Dallas comes out in that divisional playoff game. If they can win that, I would say they will go to the Super Bowl. And, of course, they're going to play the New England Patriots. But if you made me a team, Kansas City and Pittsburgh can give New England a tough time. I do think so. They'd have to have a few breaks, don't get me wrong. But Kansas City, those playmakers that run game of Pittsburgh right now, they can kind of control the game that way a little and keep Tom and that offense off the field. I think they can make it interesting.
2: I just wonder, to me – About midseason, I said, you know, there's one team that's absolutely intriguing in the AFC, and everybody thought, well, geez, Pittsburgh. Well, Pittsburgh's obviously intriguing. You know that they can beat anybody anywhere. Right. The team that is intriguing to me a little bit is Kansas City, just for this reason. Tyreek Hill. Yes. So they're in a close game yesterday. They're playing San Diego. You figure that they're probably going to win because the Chargers are going to make enough mistakes to beat themselves because they always do. And so you go out there and you're watching the game, and all of a sudden Tyreek Hill is surrounded at the five-yard line. He gets a punt, and two guys are just ready to just beat the crap out of him as soon as he receives the punt he does one jiggle and nobody touches him and 95 yards later he's in the end zone and that is something that i keep thinking to myself bill belichick has to be watching the kansas city chiefs and he has to be going into his staff to the whoever the chris sims is now he said Take me all of the mm-hmm. Tyree Kill's plays this year, and we got to figure out how we're going to stop this one guy.
1: That's
2: uh, I, I, he's going to yeah. have a project at some point to figure out how we're going to stop this one guy and how we're not going to punt to him.
1: I think uh, you're, I think you're, it's very valid. That's what's scary about Kansas City is they got playmakers like that, right? You think of Justin Houston, Marcus Peters, Barry, Tyree Kill, and Odell Beckham Jr. For my money, are the they're most the explosive people they are, guy. right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, when the ball's in their hand, you are going. They're going to go to the house. Yeah. Uh, so. I'm with you there. I do look at them as a legit threat. It should be very interesting. Yeah. Chris Sims, thanks so much. You're the man. All right. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast.
2: Joined now on the podcast by Richie Incognito, guard of the Buffalo Bills. And I always say about Richie Incognito that one day, and I know this is going to shock a segment of American society— But one day, Richie Incognito has a chance to be really good on TV and radio. And so as we preview the playoffs, I really wanted to get his voice and his sort of kind of his interpretation of some of the best teams in football from being down there in the pit with them, being down in the Roman Coliseum with them. And uh, Richie, it's great of you to join me. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. All right, so I'm going to start off by asking you, you know, as somebody now who's got significant experience in playing the New England Patriots, the Goliaths of your division in the AFC East, why in your mind are the Patriots sort of the team that never pauses
0: at greatness? You know, first and foremost, I have to start with Tom Brady. Um, I've been competing against him for a bunch of years, and um, the guy is a stone-cold killer. When you watch him in the pocket with the ball, he knows exactly where he's going with the ball on every single play. And I think that what he's added to his repertoire this year is throwing on the move. When he gets on the move a little bit in the past, all you had to do was move Tom off his spot, and he got very uncomfortable. But I think this year you're seeing he gets moved off his spot a little bit and these receivers are doing a good job of coming uncovered and he's making big plays down the field. So, but besides Tom being Tom and just being a great player and getting the ball out quick, I think the, the X factor when you play the New England Patriots is everybody is so cognizant of the fact that they're so good on offense, they're so good on defense, that everybody plays tight when you go play the Patriots is everybody is too afraid to make a mistake. That's really an interesting way to
2: look at it. Did that just occur to you this year? Is it something that you've thought for several
0: years? No, that's something i thought for several years. When you make a mistake against Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, they are going to make you pay. If you turn the ball over, if you... Um, you know, get caught in a a wrong defense or if if you make a mistake. And I think think teams go up there and they play tight like that because they know they have to play close to a perfect game that you get up there, you make a mistake, and it just seems like the whole house of cards comes falling down.
2: So you guys had the experience this year of playing, you know, maybe we won't call it the perfect game, but there's not going to be many teams, no matter who's playing for them, who are going to go to New England and in Foxborough beat the Patriots 16 to nothing. Take me back to that day on the last day without Brady with the Patriots and tell me what went right. And if there's a team out there in the AFC playoffs that wants to look at that tape to say, hmm, this is something we should try to do against the Patriots – Tell me
0: about that day. You know, that day, that day definitely sticks out for me. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I've never got a win up in Foxborough, albeit with Tom being out. But it was a great day. You know, we went up, and we were physical with him. We got our run game going. We, we started hitting him for chunks of yards, and that opened up our passing game. And what we really kind of hurt him on is all the intermediate stuff. We uh, You know, a lot of underneath routes, a lot of quick throws to get the ball out of their hand. And we kept chipping and chipping away in the run game. And by the fourth quarter, those three, four, five yard runs turned into eight, ten, twelve, and um, it was it was a hard fought game. You know they uh, they it was back and forth and back and forth, and um, you know we got out of there with a sixteen to nothing win. And I feel we could have scored more points. They they in typical New England fashion, um, they let us go up and down the field, but as soon as you get to the red zone, they tighten up and they, they you know they force you to kick field goals.
2: What I thought was really interesting about that day and I'm I don't have it in front of me right now but I've always thought that and again look they didn't have Brady that day but I've always thought the key to beating New England it reminds me of an old Bill Parcellsism Parcells used to always tell his offensive coordinator play clock ball you know time of possession you had to have had the ball for 36 37 minutes that day And I think that one of the key things for anybody to beat the Patriots, give Brady eight possessions. Don't give him 13. He gets 13 possessions. He's beaten the the 76 Steelers.
0: Yeah, I think it boils down to that. I think when you've seen the Giants have success with them in the playoffs, in the postseason, in Super Bowls, it was in Tom Coughlin's system where they're milking the play clock and Eli is snapping the ball with five seconds left on the play clock because over time over the course of the game, you know, zapping those 15 to 20 seconds off a of play clock, you're taking possessions away from Tom. You don't you don't want the offense on the field. You want to wear them down. And like you said, you want to you want to have the ball 35, 36, 37 minutes.
2: Richie, if you were to be debriefed, if somebody puts you under the hot white light, some coach for a team that's going to play New England in the playoffs this year, give me your three key factors. To beating New England in the playoffs
0: number one would be control the ball run the football keep yourself in manageable third down situations third and short third and medium convert third downs stay on the field number two would be limit big plays by Tom Brady he's going to get the ball out he's going to hit his receivers underneath um, you know I think Tom gets the ball out you know one of the fastest in, in the NFL because He has receivers that get open underneath, get open fast, and it's hard to defend. But keep those guys in front of you. Do not let those guys get behind you and give up big chunks of plays. And number three is score in the red zone. When you get down there, you cannot kick field goals against the New England Patriots. You have to convert those into touchdowns.
2: Good analysis. Uh, Richie Incognito of the Buffalo Bills here previewing the, the NFL playoffs I want to talk to you about a couple of the other teams that are up at the top. And, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of players. remember Julio Jones in training camp this year saying that, yeah, when I leave here, I don't really watch a lot of football. And one of his teammates said, a lot. He never watches any football. You know, I, I used to write a lot about Brett Favre. Brett Favre would never have a football game on in his house. So I always wonder about this. How much football do you watch? when you get home at 5:30 in the afternoon from a game in Orchard Park and you sit down and you 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 basically uh, turn on the TV, do you watch football? Do you watch Meet the Press? Do you
0: I mean what do you what do you what do you watch when you go home after a day of playing football? You know, as soon as I get home, I got the the afternoon game on and then the night game. Um I love it. And uh I I love checking in with my buddies. I, I have a, a ton of friends throughout the league and I I want to check in and see how they're playing. So Football's on on Sunday, football's on Monday night, football's on Thursday night. And, um, you know, I, I, I try and watch some of the commentary throughout the week, but it's it, it's a little difficult for me sometimes listening to some of these people talk about it when they're really just kind of, you know, viewing things at, at 50,000 feet and not really getting into the analysis of it.
2: What What is the one thing in your mind that the modern media – which has really become a 24-7 thing. And, and in my opinion, a lot more uh, looking at the game from afar rather than looking at the game. And, and again, this is, this is more of a cliche than anything else. But there's a lot of people now who have a bit of a cottage industry in watching tape of games and sort of interpreting what they see on tape. And what do you think people who do that who know the game some and are big tape watchers,
0: what do you think they miss? you know it's 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 kind of hard it's it's difficult to sit back and evaluate tape without being in the meetings and knowing exactly what the game plan was you can you could say "Oh this guy missed a block or this guy missed a catch or you know the quarterback missed this read but uh, unless you really know what the game plan was and the game plan called for, it's kind of difficult to sit back and Analyze a game, and it's also very difficult to sit back and analyze what a team does when you only watch one team. I think for these analyzers, and you know, it's, especially you know local guys who who just sit back and watch Buffalo Bills tape or Cleveland Browns tape, I think they need to take a look throughout the league and watch tape on everybody and, and, and notice trends and and stuff like that. It's there, there's a lot that goes into this and. There's no two teams are alike, and I think, you know, the analysis and all these stats that come out, they're great, but you have to take them with a grain of salt, because being in the meeting room and knowing exactly what's going down on a play, and watching the tape on your own, kind of in a third-party role, it's, it's very difficult.
2: Over the years, you've been kind of, a at times, and I don't know the numbers this year, you've been kind of a darling of pro football focus, which I, I think pro football focus... I give them a lot of credit, I really do, because they try and they look at every play of every game on every player. So as you've watched them come into the landscape,
0: what have you thought of the work they've done? Well, like you said, they've they've had me graded very high, so I think they do an excellent job. <laughs> of pro Football Focus, <laughs> but you know, it, like I said, it's it's difficult to know, especially for an offensive line, it's difficult to know what we're doing and if we missed a block or if the running back missed a read or if something went on. Unless you have the knowledge of what I was actually supposed to do on that play, and Pro Football Focus does a great job. They they, they evaluate every game. They look at everything over the entire season. But without knowing that knowledge, without knowing game plan details, it's, it's very hard to kind of grade somebody, in, in my opinion.
2: In your mind, when you look at it right now, of the teams in the playoff field this year, which offensive lines, if you were going to sit down and watch tape and try to learn something, what are the offensive lines in the playoffs this year that you really like?
0: I like Oakland's offensive line. They have a bunch of big, stout run blockers, and they get after people in pass protection. Um, that's actually what I was going to get into you know, covering the Oakland and Houston game. You know, key to victory for them is to, to wear down that Houston defensive front with their big maulers up front and really take control of the game with the run game. You know, they're number six in the league in rushing, and uh, with the quarterback, um, you, know, you don't know if McGloin's going to be able to go on a short week um, or if they're going to have the rookie, Connor Cook, in there. Um, So the one thing they can hang their hat on is is obviously running the football. And another offensive line I like is Pittsburgh. I think with uh, Le'Veon Bell back there, um, they really have something special going on. And what you see in Pittsburgh's offensive line is different from what everybody is doing in the NFL. Pittsburgh isn't a team that's going to roll off the ball and maul you up front. But what they're going to do is they're going to zone you and, and get into you and they're going to wait for the defender to pick a side. And as soon as the defender picks a side, that's when Le'Veon is sitting back and waiting and reading. And he's so patient. He sets up their block so well that once a defender picks a side, the offensive lineman finishes in that way, and then Le'Veon cuts and makes you know huge runs.
2: You know, the thing about Le'Veon, I want to ask you this question, because obviously Pittsburgh is going to have to run the ball well against a good front, which you know better than anybody in Miami. The thing, when I watch him play, the reason he's such a unique back in football today, I think there is nobody even remotely like him. You Sometimes you say to yourself, come on, run. Sometimes he just, like, he waits, and he waits. And, you know, he almost gives himself, he sets himself up for trouble. He sets himself up for, like, a two-yard loss, and then all of a sudden, bang, he's gaining nine. So when you watch him run... I sense this incredible amount of confidence, not just in his own running style, but in his offensive linemen in front of him, knowing what's going to be there in front of him.
0: No doubt. I think you you hit the nail on the head. There's a rare combination of Le'Veon's running skills and what their offensive line is trying to do. They're not trying to blow people off the ball. They're trying to shadow people and get in the way until Le'Veon makes a cut. and He is so patient. 99% 99% of the backs in the league right now, if they were that patient and hung out behind the line of scrimmage that long, they would be tackled for loss. But Le'Veon trusts his guys up front. He trusts them to finish blocks, and he trusts that they know, you know which way he's, he's intending to go, and he just waits and waits and waits and waits for somebody on the backside to get a cutoff block and create a little crease, and like you said, here comes the 9, 10-yard runs. I mean, he's having an incredible season. 261 rushes, uh, 1,268 yards on the ground, 4.9 uh, carry, 7 touchdowns. And what makes him so special is coming out of the backfield. 75 receptions, 616 yards, 8.2 yards per, per touch on, in the pass game. That's very hard to defend.
2: Visiting with Rinchi Incognito, uh, previewing the playoffs, uh, Richie, let's go into that game, and I'll ask you one more question. As somebody who knows the Miami Dolphins very, very well, even though they've changed, new coach, a lot new there, what's going to tell the tale in the Pittsburgh-Miami
0: game? I think it's going to be Miami stopping the run, and I think it's going to be Pittsburgh ultimately having success running the football. Um, right now Miami's sitting there. They're 30th in the league against the run. When we played them last weekend, we had a, a knockdown, dragout drag out game with them. We took them into overtime. Um, I think they've had trouble stopping the run, and it, it's twofold. They're, they're having an issue stopping the run because they've had so many key injuries. Rashad Jones, the linebackers are banged up. And also, they're, they're giving up big chunks of yards in the passing game. So what you're seeing is before they were able to come down, put eight men in the box, and really play coverage on the back end because they were so talented. Now they're nicked and bumped a little bit in the back end, so now they have to drop back and play coverage, and it's opening up big lanes in the run game. I think this all boils down to, you know, this is a classic uh, Pittsburgh deal. They're going into the playoffs, they're rolling, they have the pedigree, it's going to be a cold day in Pittsburgh, and they're going to try and establish the run, and the key to this game is for Miami to get that stopped. I take it you you sound like you like the Steelers in that game. I do. I'm picking the Steelers in that game. Um, I just think Pittsburgh's so hot right now. They're on a seven-game win streak. Miami, you know, Miami's been playing well. but And I will say this. Miami has completely changed the culture down there. Playing them last season to this season is night and day difference. And I shared this with members of the, the Miami team, you know, um, really proud of how far they've come and, and what they've done. But if you look at their total body of work, they have one win against a winning team, and that happens to be Pittsburgh. And I think Pittsburgh wants revenge on their home field in the playoffs.
2: Let's move to the Oakland-Houston game, which I have absolutely no clue about. First of all, I don't know who's playing quarterback for either team. And second of all, I'm not sure it matters. <laughs> you know, I mean, none of the quarterbacks you know have any proven track record of playing well, particularly of, of playing at all in the playoffs. But what's
0: important there? You know, the important thing, I think, is for Houston to play defense. They're playing really well on the defensive side of the ball, even though their offense has been inconsistent. They're number 12 in yards per game. Uh, In the rush game, they're not giving up a lot of yards, which I think is a key for Oakland. I think if you're going to have your second or third quarterback in there, you want to control the game with your offensive line. You want to run the ball, and you want to run the ball effectively. I think Houston has the advantage in the quarterback because there's some familiarity with Brock Osweiler or Savage. They both have taken snaps in a game and have thrown balls to these receivers. You have a situation in Oakland where your third-string quarterback is coming in and Connor Cook, he's been taking practice squad reps the entire year. Yes, he's been in the quarterback meetings and he's been game planning, but he has no rhythm and timing with any of these wide receivers. So that's one thing to look at. I think Houston in this game where it's it's really – kind of a, a crapshoot on who's going to play quarterback. I think Houston has the leg up in the quarterback competition.
2: Visiting with Richie Incognito, we're going to move over to the NFC playoffs. Now, Richie, the Buffalo Bills went to Seattle and played one of the best games against Seattle that anybody played all year. You had well over 400 yards. I think he had 160-something uh, yards rushing. Uh, you really played well against a team that has been the best defense in football over the last four years. So what was the secret that day? And if the Detroit Lions are listening to this podcast, what are you telling the Lions about going up to Seattle and playing well there?
0: You know, it's an incredibly difficult place to play. Anybody that's played there, they know that the crowd's into it. Um, It's super intense. You won't be able to hear anything on the field. Our mantra was, let's go up there and punch them in the mouth at home and we went in there with our heavy run game package, you know, run downhill at them, bring in the extra offensive line, run power, run trap, get after them up front, and really kind of take it to them. Um, they've had some key injuries, you know, uh, missing Earl Thomas in the back end, I think really has impacted that secondary a lot, you know, but Seattle's an incredibly tough place to play. Um, it's uh, it's It's a tall order, especially in the playoffs. They've been there before. They've they know the the flow of the postseason. They have that mentality that let's just get to the postseason and see where we're at. And um I think a key to the game is, you know, can Seattle run the football? Can they can the offensive line muster a performance and run a, run the football to control the clock and ultimately buy some time for Russell Wilson in the pass game?
2: I'll tell you what's gonna to be tough for Detroit. They haven't been able to run the ball the whole year. They won't have theoretic Riddick. Uh, they're running with a South Dakota State Jack Rabbit, Zach Zenner. You know, and you know they have had some trouble uh, both protecting Matthew Stafford and running the ball. You think if Detroit doesn't run the ball, it could be a long day.
0: I would think so. I, I would think so. And just looking looking at some of the numbers, you know, they're, they're Matt Stafford's one and twenty five on the road against winning teams. Uh, Seattle is not a place where you want to go test that out. You know, that's a, that is a, a very very difficult environment. To me, watching the Packers game last night, it looks like he missed on some throws. Maybe the finger's bothering him. He was
2: a little high last night, I thought.
0: He was a little high. You know, he's a little inaccurate. And you you go to Seattle and you throw a a high or inaccurate ball like that, Cam Chancellor, Richard Sherman, they're running the other way with it.
2: So, the Seattle Seahawks over Detroit in that game on the Richie Incognito scale. All right, (laughs) Richie, uh, the game of the weekend, in my opinion, is Giants-Packers and... I'm totally fascinated with this matchup because the Giants have become reborn. They bought a defense. You know, Damon Harrison up front is really a handful. Obviously, Olivier Vernon, who you knew, uh, you know, clearly and now have played against as a defensive edge guy from Miami. And then Janoris Jenkins in the secondary. Talk to me a little bit about what challenges you have when you go up against that Giants defense.
0: You know, like you said, they 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 went out and they they brought in some key additions. Um, Damon Harrison in the middle; he's he's they call him Big Snacks. The guy is a run-stuffing machine. From tackle to tackle, you have to block him, or else he's going to shut down your entire game plan. You, know, you played him.
2: You played him last year when he was with the Jets, and I wonder what was the game plan in in blocking him, and what makes him so difficult from a good heavy power running game standpoint like you guys have in Buffalo what was difficult about Damon Harrison
0: you know the big thing about us is when we're when we're running this um our trap schemes or our pull schemes or our our get out on the perimeter run schemes you have to get him down blocked and the biggest thing about him is he's so heavy that he can run you right over or he can get his hands on you and shed you. And that's what I think he does really well. I think he sheds blocks really well, and he makes tackles for loss for days. The Packers going into this game, they have to know where he's at at all times, and they have to get two guys on him, get him doubled, and get him shut down, and then you have to worry about the rest of that defense swarming and making plays. You mentioned Olivier Vernon. He's a stud on the end. He brings a ton of heat in the, the pass game, gets after the quarterback, very disruptive, and he plays the run really well. I think he's an underrated run player because he's so strong at the point of attack, and he plays so well with his hands. This is a great game. This is a great matchup. This is, this is you know all your bang for your buck. You've got two teams that are coming in who are red hot, Packers have been rolling. Uh, Giants, you know, they, they found their groove after a four-game losing streak, and now they're hot, too. Um, they got the number one scoring defense in the league since week seven, so this is a great matchup. Uh, uh, Aaron Rodgers, uh, you know, kind of found new life up there after having a poor start to the season. Well, in, in Aaron Rodgers' terms, but I think, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, this is it. This is the big-ticket matchup of the weekend. You know, these are two extremely hot teams who are deserving of going into the second round of the playoffs.
2: Richie, in this game right here, do you, when you see, it's almost like the unstoppable force meets the immovable object. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, last seven games, 18 touchdowns, no picks. Giants shut down, uh, you know, three really good offenses late in the season. So what tells the tale in this game?
0: You know, I think it's going to come down to turnovers. I think that it's strength for strength. The Green Bay Packers are very good at moving the ball and putting up points. The Giants are very good at stopping teams and putting up points on defense. I think that if the Packers don't turn the ball over and move the ball, get a little bit of the run game going, um, I think, you know, at home, I, I think they have the advantage. Now, you can't count Eli Manning out in the playoffs. They have been inconsistent, but they do put up points on defense, which kind of makes up for the deficiency on offense sometimes and sometimes breathes life back into the offense.
2: Richie Incognito, you've helped me break down the first weekend of the playoffs. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, I'll be connecting with you down the road for a little more analysis. Thanks so much.
0: Excellent. Thanks for having me, Peter. It's the
2: MMQB Podcast. Joined now on the podcast by Jonathan Casillas of the incredibly defensively impressive New York Giants. And... (laughs) So, Jonathan, you know, following your story and following your defense's story this year, I can't help but hearken back to some of the defenses that the Giants had when they won the Super Bowl in 2007 and 2011. And yes, it's a different pedigree. There are different names and everything. But I, I, I wonder being around that team, being around that organization, and being one of the defensive leaders, are you reminded? Of those two defenses that really played huge roles in winning Super Bowls.
3: Well, you know, and not to take anything away from the 2007 and 2011 Giants, but I'm thinking a little further beyond that too. You know, the the '90 and the '86 championship too, with you know Lawrence Taylor and Harry Carson, Banks, and all those guys. You know, it's uh, I was young then, as in I wasn't born in '86, and I was <laughs> I was two, three years old then, but you know, that history is, is, is uh, documented very well in uh, in the Giants organization. And, you know, we're trying to be remnants of not only to 2017 and the 2011 team, but also throughout the defensive history of Giants and trying to keep that tradition strong, man. It's a very strong tradition. And uh, the guys I named, of course, Strahan in that group. And, you know, I can go on for days listening to the guys that contributed to not only the statistics and the defensive domination over some of these elite teams, you know, the Joe Montana, San Francisco 49ers back in the day, beating them in the NFC championship game. You know, I mean, it it goes on and we're just trying to keep up that tradition, man. And it's all about the defense here in New York. That's what gets, gets these rings put in in, in the cases.
2: So Jonathan, I wonder you play a spot that both Carl Banks and Lawrence Taylor played sort of as as one of the outside linebackers there. And I wonder, in your mind, have you gotten to meet and or talk to those guys? Do they come around very much? What, if anything, have you learned from them?
3: Well, I speak to uh, Carl Brinks all the time. He's he's basically part of the team now. You know, he's always around. He does a radio show. And You know, I'm pretty sure he's the one that's responsible for the beautiful white starter jackets that we had. (laughs) And so I get the chance to speak to him, you know, every now and again. It's more of just encouraging things and saying that he likes the way we're, we're rolling. And believe it or not, I actually had a chance to speak with Lawrence Taylor over the phone. And it was one of the most memorable conversations I've ever had. Just, you know, I mean, I always wanted to, I mean, you always hear stories about him and you see, you know, the 30 for 30 in the E 60s and, and the specials that they have on TV. And You know, I played for Belichick, and he coached him when he was here with the Giants. And, you know, I always kind of wanted to hear like a personal story or something I can get a little closer to this lead man, you know. And I had a chance to actually speak with him on the phone. And, you know, short and sweet, he basically said, when you're playing against somebody, make them remember you. Huh. Do something throughout the game, you know, inflict your will to the point where they remember you and they understand the type of person and the type of, you know, he used some explicit language in there as well. (laughs) That's a surprise. (laughs) The the type of, you know, stuff you bring to the table and they have to go see you every time they play you. And that resonated with me, and I actually shared that with the team.
2: Visiting with Jonathan Casillas, linebacker of the New York Giants. So, Jonathan, give me an example this year where you feel – You have imposed your will on another player, on another team that sticks out in your mind. Give me a play from your season that you think will make people remember you.
3: Well, um, we played Baltimore earlier in the season. And it was at the point where I think we lost three straight after winning the first two of the year. And uh, they were uh, on our goal line. We were on defense, and it was fourth and two. And they happened to run a toss play to my side of the field. And I made a really good play in getting the the fullback who was lead blocking against me and lead blocking. And I did a good job in shedding them and keeping my feet clean. And I hit the running back for like a two-yard loss on fourth and two. And ever since then, I feel like we've really taken off. You know, the stadium went crazy. offense went crazy, you know, they had a really good game that game. You know, we really stepped up defensively since that point. You know, we rolled off a lot of games since then.
2: So Jonathan, teams in the NFL today are used to every year, it's kind of a new year. And every year, you know, your defense is going to make some major changes. You obviously got to the Giants from New England as a free agent in 2015. So you've been there 15 and 16. So when I look at your team this year, I look at Damon Harrison. I look at Olivier Vernon. I look at Janoris Jenkins as huge pieces that have been added. But I want you to look at it from the standpoint of a player who now has to get used to playing with different guys every single year. What is that process like, and particularly with this group this year, how has it managed to go seemingly, anyway, from the outside so smoothly?
3: Well, um, there's always some type of transition period, you know, when you have a whatever. I played for you know several defensive coordinators in my career as well, and that's another process in its own. And, you know, bringing in new guys, you know, you have to take time for them to, to learn the system, learn the scheme. And that's just getting the you know, the fundamentals down, the X's and O's down. Then when you're implementing these schemes and, and you're seeing, you know, like for instance, like a player like Snacks, you know, you he's a different player. I've never played with a defensive tackle like him.
2: This is Damon you know, Harrison, snacks. Yeah, snacks. Yeah. Who yeah, evidently likes his snacks.
3: He loves his snacks. <laughs> and the snacks include offensive linemen, <laughs> running back, quarterbacks. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it, I mean, he's a great player, but playing linebacker behind him is different than I've ever experienced. And
2: Why? Because he cleans up so much in front of you? Because he, he can kind of do what
3: he wants to do. You know, when he when an O-lineman puts his hand on him, you know, defensive linemen have to play in a gap or two-gap, whatever have you, but there's always some type of responsibility they have. He's so good. That he can dominate his man and be in his responsibility, and then when the ball comes, he can throw him and basically be in somebody else's, you know, gap. But he's dominated two gaps basically, you know. And, and for for a person like me who hasn't seen that ever in the NFL with somebody being such a dominant force, you know, it's kind of not difficult to play off him. Of. But it took a little curve to learn how to play off of him, you know, because you can't run to the gap that, you know, he's in, you know, because, he, you know, that that's that's going to be two people in the same gap. And, it, you know, it took a little bit of an adjustment period to see what type of player he was going to be. Olivier Vernon, how really good he is on the edge. You know, he's a really good uh, edge setter. And and then Janoris Jenkins, you know, you can do so much when you have a DRC and the Janoris Jenkins on the back end, who can basically shut down any receiver in the NFL. And that just, as the year progresses and you figure out what type of tools these guys bring to the table, then you start figuring out your identity and what everybody does collectively as a unit together well. And then I feel like we've done, we've progressed every game and every week, win or lose, we've gotten better.
2: Finishing up with Jonathan Casillas of the New York Giants. So Jonathan, one question now about the task in front of you. You're playing Aaron Rodgers this weekend at Lambeau Field. Aaron Rodgers in his last seven games has 18 touchdowns and zero interceptions. You guys played them in week five this year. The Packers won the game, a narrow victory, but they got 406 total yards. They possessed the ball for 37 minutes. So... What do you recall about that day, and what do you think will be different this week?
3: Well, I feel like we're a better unit than we were back then. Eddie Lacy had a really good ground attack against us that day. He he uh, he really uh, took advantage of some cutback lanes, and um, that gave him the momentum. You know, um, once Aaron Rodgers, you know, definitely one of the <laughs> top elite quarterbacks in the NFL for the last decade or what have you. When he has a run game, you know, which he did against us the first game, he's unbelievable. You know, and we, Jack Rubber had two interceptions that game, but that's not good.
2: Janoris oh, Jenkins, yeah.
3: Yes. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, he helped us like, stay in the game. You know, but because Dream Bay was able to run the ball on us and, and Aaron Rodgers is doing what he does, you know, it, was, uh, it wasn't it was a good showing for us. But, you know, um, we've, we've done a lot better playing against the run. And um on the back end as well, you know, J- J- Jack Rabbit, you know, he's going to be healthy. You know, everybody's playing big in the absence of JPP. And, uh, you know, I feel like we're a better unit. And, um, you know, we, we have a lot of confidence going into the game and, you know, throughout history. History is on our side as well. So let's not take me away from anything about the Lambeau, the Tundra mystique, because that's still there for sure in the playoffs. And then Aaron Rodgers is – you know he's playing the best ball out of anybody right now in the NFL. So, you know we're going to have to do a really good job against him and making sure he doesn't beat us.
2: America will be watching Sunday as the New York Giants play uh, the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers at Lambeau Field. But when Jonathan Casillas says history is on your is on his side, he's absolutely right. In two thousand seven, that playoff season. The Giants went and beat Brett Favre in overtime in Favre's last game as a Green Bay Packer. Then in 2011, uh, the Giants went in and beat Aaron Rodgers after the Packers were 15-1 and in that regular season. So, history's on your side, and uh, I think America is really going to be watching to see if the New York Giants can make it a hat trick on Sunday, Jonathan.
3: Yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm excited, man, and uh, definitely going to be a good day.
2: Jonathan Casillas, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast this week. Wish you all the best in Green Bay Sunday afternoon.
3: Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure.
2: Thank you.
1: You're listening to the MMQB Podcast.
2: My thanks to Chris Sims, Richie Incognito, and Jonathan Casillas for an excellent preview of what should be a wide-open 2016 NFL playoff run. Before we leave today, just a couple of thoughts on the coaching searches that are now going on coast to coast, really, because in this week, which is the week before the beginning of the playoffs, teams have started not only their fact-finding process on who they might like to hire, but they quite literally are being gumshoes this week. They are looking into everything. They're going to look into, okay, Josh McDaniels offensive coordinator of the Patriots, and they're going to look and see what really happened six, seven years ago when he was the coach of the Denver Broncos and he made some mistakes, and And should we really consider uh, Josh McDaniels to be our head coach? On the other hand, you have Josh McDaniels saying, should I even be interested in leaving Bill Belichick and Tom Brady? So there's a lot of things going on uh, that are bubbling beneath the surface this week. But what I want to touch on is... How this week, what really interested me this past Saturday and Sunday, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, in making a round of phone calls to the decision makers, and in fact some of the coaches who are going to get some phone calls about whether they're interested in interviewing for jobs, what really interested me this year is that unlike other years, as one general manager of a team that's going to need a coach said to me, there is no leader in the clubhouse. We go into this with a totally blank slate. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about that is that I think what happens so often when teams are picking coaches is that they sprint out to beat the competition to some guy who maybe they like, maybe they don't like. And two months after they hire him, they say, well, wait a second. We don't love this guy. We have this problem, this problem with him, and, and we're not sure this is going to work. So I've always wondered this, and I talk to teams about this all the time. In fact, I told a CEO of a team that has an opening right now, I said, this goes right into your wheelhouse because you don't really like anybody. And it isn't that this executive doesn't like anybody. It's just that it's so early in the process, he doesn't know all these coaches. It's not like, okay, we're going after Nick Saban or we're going after this guy. Like, for instance, in 2012, the St. Louis, at the time, the St. Louis Rams, basically started to focus on Jeff Fisher as as a coach. He had been out of the game, and now uh, he was going to get back in, and it was going to be a competition between uh, Miami and St. Louis for Jeff Fisher. But because St. Louis didn't know exactly whether they were going to get Jeff Fisher, they started going out and interviewing other people. And at the time, people are going to laugh at this now, but at the time, Kevin Demoff, the COO of the Rams, went and made a surreptitious trip into New Jersey and drove to New Brunswick, New Jersey, and had a secret meeting with Greg Schiano, who at the time was the coach of Rutgers. And I remember talking to him about that visit, and he goes, I didn't know anything about Chiano, and I went in there, and I learned so much. And he said, I love this guy. And if we hadn't hired Jeff Fisher, there's a very good chance we were to, we would have hired Greg Sciano. And so, look, be that as it may, everybody will say, ah, oh, look, Chiano failed at Tampa, and we could talk about that for a long time. I think it was not a great situation, and Vince Lombardi wouldn't have won there. But I think... What that told me and what that reinforced to me is teams should spend two or three weeks going and interviewing everybody. You know, if I had an opening right now, and even if I liked a person and there was a leader in my clubhouse, I'd still go interview 15 people because how do I know what's out there? This is a vital decision for the future of your franchise. What is the race to the finish every year that these teams have that they want to sprint out And hire one or two guys. You know, everybody focuses on one or two guys. That's why, to me, I think we're going to see some upsets. I think the Rams might hire, and I have no idea who they're going to hire, but I think the Rams might hire an unknown guy because I think Kevin Demoff, Stan Kroenke, they believe we're going to go out and do these interviews and hire somebody we really like. And that is my one plea to all of these teams that have openings right now. Take your time, relax, find a guy, interview 10, 12, 15 guys. Don't get caught up in some race over, you know, some offensive coordinator who you think might be really, really good and who gave you a great interview. Go interview seven other guys and you're going to find somebody as good or better for the most part, but do your due diligence, do your homework, and above all... Do not be in a hurry to hire a coach. Thanks to my guests Chris Sims, Richie Incognito, and Jonathan Casillas. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my chats with Bruce Arians, Larry Fitzgerald, and Drew Brees. You can find these on the MMQB.com or on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Also, listen to other podcasts in our series with Albert Breer, Gary Gramling, and Andy Benoit. Thanks to the fine folks at Digital Media for their production work, and I'll see you next week.
0: This has been a Digital Media production. Find your voice.